Hello, and welcome to the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma, TraumaCast series. I'm your host, Dr. Babak Sarani, Associate Professor of Surgery at the George Washington University Hospital. Joining us today is Dr. Elliot Hout, Associate Professor of Surgery at the Johns Hopkins Medical Center. Dr. Hout has published several articles addressing the utility of screening for deep venous thrombosis in trauma patients. Briefly, the role for screening duplex remains very controversial, with centers that screen for the disease having a predictably significantly higher incidence of DVT and therefore allegedly worse outcomes. Conversely, there's a school of thought that states that by screening for DVT, we will lower our PE rate and hopefully prevent unnecessary mortality and morbidity. We will be discussing these points today with Dr. Hout. Welcome, Dr. Hout. Let's start by putting the problem of DVT PE in perspective. In perspective. How common is this in the general population and in trauma specifically? Uh, it's a great question. It's actually a huge problem in the United States. Uh, in 2008, the U.S. Surgeon General actually put out a call to action that gave us some numbers. About 350,000 to 600,000 patients are affected by DVT each year, and there are approximately 100,000 deaths per year from PE. To put that in perspective, that's more deaths than from AIDS and from breast cancer and actually from motor vehicle collisions. Um, and as we know, trauma is one of the significant drivers of DVT and PE. Um, the rates can be very high. If you pick the right patients and get venograms in them and they haven't been getting prophylaxis, the rates might be as high as 50% of trauma patients. Uh, if we look at large databases like the National Trauma Data Bank, the numbers are smaller. Under 1% um, is, is the numbers if you look at all trauma patients as all comers. And so what are the ramifications of this in overall and also in the trauma population in terms of cost, et cetera? Well, obviously, the biggest thing is the people who die from pulmonary embolism. That's the main thing we want to prevent. But even if you don't die from a PE, the, the problems of having a DVT are real and significant. Um, first of all is the clinical things that patients develop. So long-term problems with chronic pulmonary hypertension, long-term problems with venous stasis ulcers, and uh, post-phlebitic syndrome. Those things can be really devastating from a clinical standpoint to the patients. Uh, from an economic standpoint, it, it significantly increases length of stay in the hospital. It significantly increases costs. The estimates are somewhere between $15,000, $25,000 increased costs uh, of hospitalization for patients with DVT or PE. And so before we get to the point of discussion regarding screening for asymptomatic disease, let's briefly talk about uh, how compliant the trauma community is overall with administration of pharmacologic prophylaxis against DVT. So uh, in general, medicine, uh, we do a bad job of giving the right prophylaxis to patients. Uh, and there's lots of different studies, both in the United States and internationally, that, that have shown this. Uh, one study showed that uh, only about 40% of patients with a DVT diagnosed had gotten the right prophylaxis. That's a U.S. study. There's another study that included hundreds of uh, centers from 30 different countries, 70,000 patients almost, that showed that only about 60% of surgical patients and about 40% of medical patients 
got the prophylaxis they, they really should be getting. Um, I think we as trauma surgeons do better. Uh, and we actually did one small study looking at um, centers from the National Study on Cost and Outcomes of Trauma, the NSCOT study, looked at the level one trauma centers and showed that patients, about 80% of patients, got some form of DVT prophylaxis. Um, so we're doing better than medicine and better than other forms of surgery, but I would still say we should be at 100%. So any common themes as to why people are not compliant? Um, part of it is education. People don't know what they should be getting. Um, and that's probably the, the number one theme. I mean, there are some people who just think their patients are too sick and they're going to bleed and have complications from it. Um, but I think those two pieces are the real reasons why people don't get it. And there are things we can do to improve. Um, you know, when I was a resident, when I was a fellow, we had a laminated card that reminded us of what we should be giving to trauma patients. But uh, as it turns out, there's data that shows that those laminated cards and education alone just don't work. Uh, we actually have a paper coming out uh, this fall in Archives of Surgery that show what we've been able to do here at Johns Hopkins Hospital is we implemented a computerized clinical decision support tool. So all patients get this done by the resident who's writing the admission orders. It forces them to risk stratify the patient, give them some risk factors, give them some contraindications and the computer tells the resident what they should be ordering, and we were able to drive up our compliance significantly. That, that's interesting, and I kind of like the concept. However, I, I know a handful of people who would say, you just took away my autonomy as a physician. Um, is there any way to override the program? Absolutely, and that was actually one of the big fights we fought. We wanted to, to make this an opt-out system where you put in your risk factors and your contraindications, and it said, great, Mr. Jones is high risk, and we're giving him anoxaparin Q12 hours. Um, and we got a lot of pushback that providers didn't want the computer to do it for them. So the way we went about it and we compromised was it gives a suggestion, anoxaparin 30 milligrams Q12 hours, and right at the bottom of the computer screen is a box the resident can check off and says, yes, that's what I want to give. But it's an active system where they have to do it. The only thing we force them to do is to do the risk stratification so we know how high risk the patient is. And not to go too far off topic, but I assume from a performance improvement perspective, this is outstanding because you're going to capture all the data as far as how patients were risk stratified, what the physician actually did, and then the ramifications, PE, DVT, that kind of stuff. Absolutely. And, and it's interesting. Now we've had the system in place for a few years, and now we're actually able to drill down to a patient level, to a provider level, to an attending level, to a service level. And this isn't just in trauma. This is trauma, general surgery, orthopedics, urology, ENT, internal medicine, OBGYN. It's the whole hospital, all adult patients. That's really interesting. Okay. So let's say you are in a hospital, much as you actually are, that is compliant with the use of pharmacologic prophylaxis, however which way you uh, enforce the compliance. Um, so you have a hospital that's compliant with giving pharmacologic prophylaxis against DVT. What is the role for duplex ultrasonography in that setting to screen for DVT in asymptomatic patients? So uh, it is uh, still an ongoing big controversy. Um, and the, the pro people really feel that, that the idea behind screening is you find the DVT early, before it's symptomatic, and you can then treat the patient to prevent their PE and, and their fatal pulmonary embolism. So that's the, the pro side of why we should be screening. The con side of screening is that, number one, it's costly. If you were to imagine screening every 
admitted trauma patient, I mean, the numbers can get astronomical pretty quickly. Um, and then the other side that people have actually really mentioned is you might find some DVTs that are not going to be clinically relevant. And, you know, you then put the patient at risk with anticoagulation for something that was never going to cause them a problem. So there really is this controversy. And the real hard part is clinicians want to get guidance on this topic and go to the, the groups that give um, practice management guidelines. And the guidelines are contradictory. So the American College of Chest Physicians have guidelines which really say they say that they should not be screened. Duplex ultrasound should not be used for screening asymptomatic patients in trauma. Uh, however, the guidelines from EAST, the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma, actually do have recommendations that it may be cost-effective in certain specific patient populations. And do we have any data on what percentage of trauma centers screen versus those who don't? Uh, so it's interesting, and that's been an interest of mine. So we actually did a survey, um, and I'm going to guess a lot of the listeners have actually uh, participated in the survey, so I'll thank them in advance. Uh, we did two different surveys. The first was a survey of individual providers to get their individual opinions. And we surveyed East and AAST members. We got uh, replies back from over 300 practicing trauma surgeons throughout the country, and about three-quarters felt that high-risk asymptomatic patients should be screened. And the majority of those actually thought it should be done early, before six days, and it should be done about weekly. So that's the opinions of the trauma surgeons out there. Um, the second half of this paper we wrote was surveying the trauma centers. So we sent this out through the National Trauma Data Bank, and we worked closely with the American College of Surgeons to do this. We got replies back from over 200 trauma centers in the United States, and about a quarter have some sort of policy, protocol, or guideline to screen high-risk asymptomatic patients at their trauma center. That, that's higher than I would have expected. I've got to tell you, I would not have thought 75% of the community would have been on the pro side, given the controversy underlying all this. Um, and that's so Johns Hopkins University uh, trauma system does screen for asymptomatic disease. So we're one of the places that does have a guideline. Um, ours is a guideline. It's not a policy. It doesn't force the providers to do it. It's a guideline that suggests it in high-risk trauma patients. All right, let's just talk about some of the experiences you would tell me about once you guys implemented your guideline, actually stuck to it and did it. What happened? Um, so this is actually how I got interested in the field of DVT. Um, so I, uh, I did my fellowship at the University of Pennsylvania, uh, and when I was training there, we were big screeners, and our laminated card had a, uh, indications for screening, and that's who we screened, and that's what I learned as a resident, as a fellow. Uh, I took a job at Johns Hopkins, and I came to work for Eddie Cornwell, who had come here. Uh, and he had, a few years before I got here, uh, when he got here, one of the things he did was implement a screening guideline for high-risk trauma patients for DVT. Um, he believed the data and the literature that really supported screening. So um, he had implemented that. Uh, I took over performance improvement. I was the performance improvement director here. And we basically got a letter from the state of Maryland that, to paraphrase it, said, you know, you guys, your trauma center has the highest DVT rate in the whole entire state. Um, why are you such bad doctors? Please explain. Um, and, you know, as a performance improvement person, that's probably the, the worst letter you could possibly get. 
Um, so I had to go back and share that with Eddie Cornwell and tell him that. And, you know, we had a big, long discussion about how, how could that be? You know, uh, Eddie had this great guideline in place. We were really aggressive about it. We gave the right patients. We had it on our, our paper order set of what we should be giving for prophylaxis. We're screening all these high-risk patients. And then, like, the, the, the light bulb goes off over the head. Oh, well, we're screening all these patients. Maybe we're finding a lot of DVT, and nobody else is doing that. Um, so that's when we said, well, maybe that's the problem. Maybe we're screening and nobody else is, and that's why our rate is so much higher. So we actually started with a single center study, and we looked at that here at Johns Hopkins before Eddie Cornwell came and after he came, before and after we had a guideline in place, and showed that we got significantly way more ultrasounds and found way more DVTs. And that led us to the question of you know surveillance bias. The more you look, the more you find that when you explain it to someone, most people say, well, duh, that makes sense. Um, but until you really realize that's what's potentially driving these, these reported rates, uh, it ends up being a, a problem. And the state was okay with that response? Uh, I think so. I think that was a, a very reasonable thing. You know, the, the verifying committees, they like to see that you're doing research, you're doing quality improvement, you know, and when your paper gets presented at a national meeting and gets published in the national journal, um, that's the type of, th that's driven by PI at your institution within your state. I think it's hard to argue with that. All right. Well, I'm going to try anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so let's do a counterpoint. Let's just say that I'm a trauma director at another hospital that, in fact, does not screen for DVTs um, because I query my registry and I find that um, our DVT rate is very low. Um, of course, our DVT rate is very low because I'm not screening for it. But on the other hand, my PE rate is also extremely low. So why would I want to screen for a disease process that's really not costing me anything in terms of complications? That my PE rate is low, I'm not seeing varicosities and all sorts of venous problems. Why go looking for trouble? Well, I think I would ask you the following couple questions. Are you sure, how sure are you that your PE rate is really low? And I, I think there's some that we're probably missing in our trauma registries. So the first are, you know, everyone who dies. Does everyone who dies in your trauma center get an autopsy? And can you guarantee me that the, the old person who died of a quote-unquote myocardial infarction didn't have a, a massive PE and die? If you can guarantee me that and they all get an autopsy, then, okay, then I'm happy that, it's not, that those patients are not dying from a PE. Otherwise, we know that diagnosis of PE is absolutely missed if an autopsy is not done. And it's not expected before the patient dies. A lot of these are very sudden, sudden cardiac death. I mean, a lot of patients in the hospital die from PE. Their first symptom is sudden cardiac death. So that's the first, the patients who are dying. Um, and then the second is the patients who have PE after discharge. So as we know, hospitals are crunched now for beds. You want to get people out as fast as you can. People are going to rehab when they're sicker and sicker. Patients are going to vent rehab. They're going to spinal cord rehab on a ventilator. They're really sick, and maybe they're not having their PE at day number seven before they get discharged. Maybe they're having it day number 10 at the, at the rehab center, and maybe it's not coming back to you. Maybe you don't get feedback. Maybe they're having it at home. Maybe they're getting it treated in somewhere else where they went back to their family wherever. Um, we don't have active follow-up 
Um, and I say we, meaning the trauma community, doesn't have active follow-up for complications post-discharge at most trauma centers. It's not like NISQIP centers where those NISQIP places actively follow up with a nurse who calls the patient at 30 days and said, you know, did you have an infection? Did you go to another hospital? Did you go to another doctor? There is no active follow-up for that. So you're probably thinking your PE rate is low because in hospital, you don't have that many PEs. People who die didn't have a PE because you don't get an autopsy. And the, the PEs that probably occur are already after discharge, and you just don't know about them. All legitimate points. Um, I'll keep on my naysaying track, however. Um, there is a downside, as you already alluded to earlier, uh, to anticoagulating everybody. There will be some number of people who will fall and bonk their head, and they're anticoagulated for what might have been an otherwise irrelevant DVT. was never destined to embolize, although how would you know? So what do you do with all the information you gather? Do you, um, either in your particular practice or maybe in your health system, anticoagulate people with below-knee DVTs? Do you follow them out serially with duplexes? What if they're ambulatory? What if they're not ambulatory? What do you do with all this information? Um, so it's actually a great question. And the I'll give a plug for the American College of Chest Physicians guidelines. They just came out in 2012 with their updated versions. You can go online and get them for free. And there actually is a section of what to do for below-knee isolated DVT. Um, and there are two options. Option number one is anticoagulate, fully anticoagulate patients with below-knee DVT. Option number two is serial imaging to see what's going to happen to those. Many of those will regress on their own. Um, somewhere around 15%, it really depends on the exact study in the patient population, maybe about 15% of those will progress to go above knee or get bigger and get worse and require anticoagulation. Um, so they actually have two recommendations. The American College of Chest Physicians has suggested that you can go ahead and anticoagulate all patients, or you can get serial imaging on these patients and see if there's progression. If there's progression, then go ahead and anticoagulate them. Now, what I will tell you is there is a caveat. They have patients they deem to be at high risk of propagation. And those at high risk of propagation, there's a lot of different risk factors. Two of those apply directly to trauma. Number one, a... Um, an irreversible provoking um, cause for the DVT. So, for example, in my mind, trauma. So you can't reverse the fact that they had a trauma, and that's the, the provocation for the DVT. The second is inpatient status. So, those, so in my mind, an inpatient who has trauma, who has a below DVT, should be anticoagulated based on those guidelines. Now, it's different for someone who comes into the office as, and who is completely ambulatory and has a below-knee DVT identified, those patients could be treated with compression stockings and a follow-up duplex in a few weeks uh, to, to make sure that it's not uh, progressed. So you guys here are um, anticoagulating patients with baloney DVT so long as they're in the in-hospital setting. We do, assuming they don't have a contraindication to anticoagulation, obviously. And then when you, this is going to be, I'm sure, um, uh, extrapolating, but when that same individual is discharged home, assuming that the clot has not propagated to above the knee, uh, do you continue anticoagulation? We will usually continue for a short course of anticoagulation, maybe three to six months, and reduplex and make sure it hasn't propagated. And uh, similarly, um, if the patient is discharged to a rehab center as opposed to home, um, well, how do you address anticoagulation in that setting? You mean for treatment or for prophylaxis? For, or? for treatment. 
for treatment, we we continue their treatment um, wherever the, whether they're going home, and obviously patients can go home on um, anoxaparin shots and then be transitioned over to Coumadin, um, or what they can do that at rehab centers. We do that all the time for patients who are being tr- actively treated for DVT or PE. All right. So to kind of start bringing this uh, topic to a little bit of a close, where do you think this debate is headed? Do you think that ultimately trauma centers will screen for DVT given its prevalence, or do you think that practice is going to remain variable because of issues related to public disclosure and things like that? Um, I think it's uh, it's an election year, and I think it's too close <laughs> to call. <laughs> um, I think there's a lot of disagreement between a lot of smart people um, on both sides of the fence as to what is the real benefit of screening. Um, in my mind, the big issue is, yes, right now there's still going to be screeners and non-screeners. And the important thing to remember is that there are screeners and there are non-screeners. And what you can't do is use DVT rate alone as a quality measure. So that letter that I got from the state of Maryland that says your, your rate is the highest, you're the worst doctor, those rates are completely biased and a rate of a DVT alone should never be used as a quality measure. I think that um, has to be remembered by, you know, not just me as an individual trauma surgeon, but, you know, trauma surgery as a community, uh, the public, public reporting, we can't just use DVT rate alone as a marker because of this issue of surveillance bias. And we actually wrote an an article in JAMA last year about this issue of surveillance bias and outcomes reporting and really pointed out the problem with it and the fact that it can give very biased results and and use DVT and trauma as a prime example for how this really, really can hurt the public reporting of outcomes. What we're really pushing is a better definition of preventable harm. So... Uh, as we've talked about, you know, maybe some people think DVT is preventable, not preventable. Should we screen? Should we not screen? What we've really pushed is this idea of preventable harm. Would you agree that a patient who has a DVT who came to your hospital and had risk factors for developing a DVT and didn't get prophylaxis, that in my mind is preventable. Sure. And, And I think that we can convince clinicians that that's true. So if we use that definition of preventable harm, you have the bad outcome, in this case, a DVT or PE, and you did not get prophylaxis. That makes sense as a better definition of preventable harm. And it's, it's interesting to see that's actually one of the new criteria that's being evaluated by the healthcare IT groups and the meaningful use criteria. That's VTE number six. That's one of the criteria, preventable harm, that that definition matches our suggestion to a T. So we're pretty happy to see that some of the things and all this research, I mean, this is a project that I started in 2005, and now it's interesting to see seven years later some of it's actually coming to fruition that the government's actually realizing that maybe this is a better way to report things. Well, we've been speaking today with Dr. Elliot Hout regarding the role of screening duplex ultrasonography for asymptomatic DVT in trauma patients. I would like to thank Dr. Howd again for taking the time to share his views with us. This concludes another edition of the East TraumaCast. For copyright information and disclaimers, please visit us at east.org. For the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma, I'm Dr. Babak Sarani.